This is about looking across all your workloads. So if you're using transactional analytical workloads, how do you bring all of that together, reduce the cost, reduce the maintenance headache, and create an environment where now you can scale technically and also humanly, right? Bruno Aziza is the head of data and analytics for Google Cloud. When I started, not many people cared about databases and you know backend uh, issues when it came to data. They felt that it was you know a necessary evil. Now organizations are realizing that if they're able to harness data faster than um, their competition, they really are able to do amazing things. And so, you know, great examples that you might be familiar with are things like anomaly detection or fraud analytics or product recommendations. You know, think about in your daily life, you go on a particular website and you're you're kind of shocked sometimes that a website knows you more than you might know yourself. They're able to recommend uh, amazing content and products that you might not have thought about. And so all these systems, uh, all the work that goes behind, you know, serving you content that's highly personalized, highly relevant, and makes a great experience for you, typically is powered by our technology. One of the significant challenges is choosing the right problem and the right set of data. How do you think about that? How do you go about making those selections? Think about the problems that are the most related to the business value uh, that is driven for your organization. You know, I think if you look at the average tenure of the chief data officer, it's, a, it's about 1,000 days, probably a little bit less than 1,000 days. And I think the reason for that is often the opportunity for data is so big that you tend to want to do everything and, and you end up, you know, not you're just focusing on, on the business value, the business metrics, what is driving the bottom line with data. And there's a huge opportunity there. You know, the two kind of areas that we see people you know, not fail, but kind of lose their ways. And when they look at the, what I call the why, the why not, you know, the why not would we look at this use case that, you know, sounds interesting, um, but actually might not lead to a specific uh, uh, value. And then there's the other use cases that sound interesting um, because they're highly innovative, um, but they're really not connected to some of the core issues that your organization is 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 trying to you know fix. And so what I would advise every chief data officer prioritize their use cases with, it's not fix the existing or find net new ones, is double down on the use cases that your, your chief financial officer, your CEO, your COO, your CPO, chief product officer is going to tell you, I can rally behind that because it's gonna drive a bottom line of value to my organization. Uh, I think that's really an important consideration. This seems easier said than done, and many data analytics folks, data science folks, have a, a real tough time getting into the heart of the right problem. So how do you winnow down, and what advice do you have for folks who, you know, they're struggling with that? I think about, you know, what I call the five S's of, of the data opportunity. And if you kind of break them down, you'll realize that they are modern issues. So the first S is solve for speed, right? If you look at the opportunity with data is you're going to live in a world that is real time and the ability for you to empower your people, drive value for your organization is about delivering the right data at the right time and using speed as an advantage. So that's your first S that you really should focus on. This idea of discarding real-time infrastructure 
is really, you know, not a good idea. It's our real time is now becoming just a must have for every organization. That's the first S. The second one is scale, right? So some organizations that we start working with tell us, you know, I'm not in the big data space. And, and you know, the news that I have for you is that everybody is, you know, in fact, we should just call it data. Because if you look at what we're doing here, there's so much data that we are, you know, uh, creating and two thirds of the data that any organization creates uh, actually never gets analyzed. In fact, you know, the economist I think came up with a research showing that less than 5% of the data that actually is a potential gets in front of people that can make uh, decisions on. So this idea of building for scale is extremely, extremely important. The third S is S around securities, right? So we talked about speed, we talked about scale. Security is really important to build in the very first stages of your data strategy. You know, more data means more responsibility. And we know sometimes, you know, people don't think about governance until they've started to kind of build their systems. You need to build with governance from day one. Now, you don't need to just be focused on governance only. You don't want to be the guardian of data and people fear, you know, using data, but you do want to think about centralized governance to enable your people. The, the, the fourth S is around simplicity. And I know we'll talk a lot about this today, but at Google, we certainly relate with this issue and this opportunity to how you can deliver simple interfaces into uh, your user community and still get the sophistication of the issue, right? So, you know, customers that we work with are challenged with, you know, my environment, my problems are highly sophisticated, but I need an interface that's simple so I can get great get adoption. So if you're a data scientist, think about that. And then the only way to get from sophistication to simplicity is my last S. It's what I call the smarts. You know, artificial intelligence is going to be the secret sauce on how you enable this. You know, the, the world of data is growing. You know, we're not going to talk about how the volume of data is just out of control, but you have more, more data, more people that want it, more use cases. So you need to use artificial intelligence, automation to augment you know, the capabilities you have today so you can deliver data with more simplicity. So that's the framework that I think about uh, when, I, when I work with organizations. Can you give us an example of a data problem that meets all of these criteria and tell us why? We talked about the issue of uh, product recommendation, for instance, right? So it does meet all of that. So uh, you, for instance, is you, you know, you'd be you'd be a, a customer of a let's say let's call it a, a retailer. You're going to have a multi-channel relationship with this retailer. You're going to go to their store. You're going to visit their site. You're going to visit their partner sites. And so, this ability of thinking, you know, at a, at a high level of scale is really important because the data points I'm going to get about Michael are going to be you know coming from multiple places. Also, the ability that I have to project an option for you is related to the speed dimension that I talked about, right? It, it's not useful, Michael, if I suggest you a pair of shoes after you just went through the card experience and you've already bought that, that pair of shoes, right? So it's, it's not really interesting to do that uh, for you. Also, building a platform that controls, you know, uh, you know the, the way the data is being used, right? So it's your data. It's not data that should be accessible by anybody else. So having a strong governance backbone to make sure that even though as, as a retailer, I have a relationship with you, I got to make sure that I've built infrastructure so your data doesn't get away. You know, you think about not just your clickstream experience, but also your credit card information and so forth. So you got to think about that 
that dimension. And then artificial intelligence, like I just said, you know, I can look at your profile and maybe what your clickstream information is, but is your cohort information, people that are just like you, that have made the right choices, maybe they've taken advantage of discounts or group products in particular formulas where I can create a much interesting experience for you. You know, retailers, financial institutions, telecommunication organizations have this huge opportunity to use data and artificial intelligence to create compelling experiences for their customers. And that returns, you know, better uh, value for them in, in the end. So hopefully I touched on all the dimensions that we just talked about here with this one example of product recommendation. How much do you care about and focus on the infrastructure? The issue of prioritizing the business problems is, is a pretty high level. So let's go all the way down to the other end, the infrastructure. How, how important is that and where does that come into play for you? Extremely important because we're now in a phase where organizations are moving to this modern data stack. Uh, you might have heard you know, terms like the data mesh, for instance, an important term that's been popularized over the last few years. But the way to think about it is to, is to step back and look at what are the issues that your organization's trying to solve? And we see typically three phases that organizations go through. So I'll kind of try to break them down for you. The first one is what we call the data ocean. Actually, it's not me that calls that, it's customers. Uh, like Vodafone, for instance, popularized the term a couple of years ago. And the data ocean idea is that you want to broaden your perspective on where your data is as much as you can. So this is capabilities around multi-cloud, catalog technology are important here. This is about looking across all your workloads. So if you're using transactional analytical workloads, how do you bring all of that together, reduce the cost, reduce the maintenance headache, and create an environment where now you can scale technically and also humanly, right? Because as you have the opportunity of looking at so much more data, you're not going to hire a lot more people to match that scale. So you, you want to go solve for the data ocean. And, you know, the technical infrastructure in the data ocean is different from the other two phases. What are the other two phases? Well, the next one is, as we just talked about, this concept of the data mesh. The problem you're trying to solve here in the data mesh is, you know, often when people create data lakes, you hear this terminology saying they become data swamps. And, and the reason for that is because the data is stored, the data is observed, the data is cataloged, but it's not really acted upon. And so the concept of the data mesh is how do I create federated environments? So now I can activate my business communities with data analytics environments that are relevant to them while I'm governing data centrally um, and that I can kind of make sure that the data that people start with is the, the data that makes the most sense for the organization. So data mesh here is about going from passive to active data. Data fabric technology is important here. Uh, and this idea of federation access to analytics is important. And then finally, the third phase where you now start to think about you're evolving to now bringing new personas, right? In the first two phases, the data architect, the data scientist, are important in this third phase of what we call the data factory uh, is popularized again by, by McKinsey is this phase where now you're building data products. So your chief product officers uh, might come into play here. You might use a universal semantic layer technology, creates data driven applications. So you can repeatedly create products like the ones that we talked about, like product recommendation, anomaly detection, fraud analytics, or all data products, all the way to creating your customer data platform, 
Um, so you can really have a 360 view of your customer. So I think the infrastructure is extremely important. What's also important is understanding your level of maturity and how you can accept this technology, not just from a technological standpoint, but also from an employee maturity standpoint. You're going to have to do a lot of training, a lot of communication to make sure people know what is it that they're trying to achieve. So again, you're always linking everything, all the technology aspects back to the business problem that you're trying to solve. It's the business problem and it's also the organizational footprint. You know, the, the, the reason for why I really like this idea of the data mesh is because it describes, you know, what you're trying to achieve, how you should line up your, uh, you know, infrastructure, but also how you think about your organization, right? We have lots of organizations that are asking, hey, should my data people report centrally into one organization? Should they be distributed? And so when you have these goals of the data ocean, the data mesh, and the data factory, you start now thinking, how do I align my organizational footprint to best serve my business goal? And so I think those are important considerations. You know, as, as, as a vendor, I know you're probably expecting me to talk to you about products all day long, but I really think that the success of a data analytics and a data platform uh, strategy is, is highly bound by your ability to galvanize your people, train them, and get them to work with you on achieving your business goal. Let's take a few questions from Twitter. And first, we have Chris Peterson, who asks, in terms of data security and privacy, how does Google navigate the maze of different regulations internally? So how do you as a company manage this stuff? We internally, you know, probably one of the most uh, secure platforms for just managing data, uh, we have, you know, you can look up this technology called access transparency and so forth. We also have specific industry teams that not only are working closely uh, with customers on these issues, but also very versed with the issues uh, for every specific industry. So, you know, I would say, you know, we, we build with security by design, uh, just like I was advising any company to think about it for their own data platform. That's what we've been doing on our own platform. In fact, a lot of the issues that we're helping customers with today are issues that we have solved for ourselves, And I think that's probably one of our competitive advantages, if I could talk about that, is we relate very well with what is it like to create compelling experiences for the future of the analytics consumer. If you think about your own organization, you know, you're going to want people to consume information the same way that they go to Google.com today. Simple interface doesn't require any training, provides high level of sophistication, high level of personalization, but still through an experience that's highly simple. Another question that's just come up on Twitter from Arsalan Khan relates to this complexity, to another aspect of this complexity. And Arsalan says collecting this kind of data, this, this scale, has real costs. And he's wondering what smaller organizations can do to take advantage of data despite the, the costs. I forgot to, to mention that one of the important considerations is this domain of financial ops or financial operations, particularly in the data mesh world, right? And data mesh world, if you can imagine, now you have centralized data governance, you're creating your data hubs and your data neighborhoods is, as some of the customers that we work with call them, and people will start consuming, you know, and, and driving some compute costs. So how do you manage that? So it's important that you think about choosing a platform that has flexible 
financial ops options. And so what that means is you can create reservations. You can say, well, we're going to be spending up to this cap and we don't spend more than that. Or you can allocate particular compute capacity to specific workloads that you can either predict or that you can kind of give a range to. And so, you know, what I would say is two things. One is there's the management of the costs, but there's also, you know, when cost increases, it's not always a bad, bad news. It's also that, well, your people are actually engaged, right? I mean, and they are actually using the platform to drive value. So I would not just look at cost by itself. I would look at price performance relationship and look at cost and value relationship. Because if you look at our industry today, we've been working on it for the last 30 years, the adoption rates of technologies are very, very low. I mean, in the business intelligence space, we're talking about 30% adoption. In the AI space, we're talking about 35% adoption. In our case, you know, I look at machine learning uh, that is deployed through a, a BigQuery. We're seeing 80% of our top 100 BigQuery customers use artificial intelligence. So what that means is that they are getting value or they're getting to usability a lot faster. And that's not always bad news for your organization. This seems one of the core issues that chief information officers must grapple with because CIOs are, the mandate for many CIOs is innovate and at the same time do more with less, right? So we want you to be the in a, a driver of innovation, but do it with less, with less cost. It's a huge challenge, but it's also a, a great opportunity. You know, like I was just saying a, a little earlier, you know, you don't want to be the, the the executive who restricts access to data. You don't want to be the executive that you know slows down innovation. You want to be the the executive who is lining up to the business objectives organization and provides a platform that is driving innovation, right? So, I mean, if you think about it, innovation in any organization is going to come from the frontline folks, the folks that are you know in closer you know contact with the customers and so forth, and so enabling that model. That's why I keep going back to the data mesh. I think it's a great model to follow is really think about business goals, technology stack, and organizational uh, structure. Uh, you know, often customers ask us, where should my analytics folks report under? And so, you know, you got to think about how you organize yourself so you can get to innovation faster than any other organization. I think today that's really the issue that we see is People do a lot of POCs, right, proof of concepts, but they're having an issue getting into production and then innovate on top of that production. We want to simplify that and we want to get to a more liquid, if you will, relationship with, with your data. It's very interesting that when you talk about the data mesh, you talk about the business goals, the technology, and then the organizational structure. Why is the organizational structure so crucial? Things get done through people and they get done through people that have shared goals. Uh, you know, I could give you the best technology, but if it's it's deployed in the in the wrong system, you know, it can't really help you. And so, you know, we did a survey uh, a few months ago where we asked, you know, where should your data analytics powerhouse should be? And we asked people, should it be under your CTO? Should it be under your chief product officer? Should it be under the CFO? Should it be under the CMO, the chief marketing officer? And what we found is, one, the answer kind of depends, but it also is related to the types of executive that you have. About 10 years ago, I wrote a, a book called Drive Business Performance. And it was based on interviews of organizations that had experienced amazing success at driving a data culture inside the organization. And, and the key was finding the right executive 
in getting the mandates into how we're going to make decisions in our organization. So, you know, you don't want to discard that. Sometimes people uh, look at their initiative and say, oh, I just have sponsorship. And sponsorship is good. It's necessary. But the mandate from your top executive saying, we will now make decisions based on data. We will now go out and look for opportunities to measure things that maybe we couldn't measure before, but because we know the business needs it, we're going to do it. That's critically important, and it's way more important, I'd say, that any of the nice and latest technology you can acquire. You know, if you don't have the organizational footprint, if you don't have the mandate from a CEO, you know, you've got a great Ferrari, but you don't really have the keys to it. So, you know, uh, why, why turn the engine on? You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, what you're describing is almost a cliche and almost extremely obvious that we need to, again, align the work that we're doing to solve the problems that we think are important. But why is it so difficult to actually achieve that very simple goal? There are a few reasons for it. I think one is we live in the time where there's a lot of innovation, there's a lot of buzzwords, and there's a lot of vendors. And if you, if you look at the, the data landscape, um, you know, that was just published, but my talk, I mean, it's, it's something I wrote about in my Forbes column. You know, this, there's a high proliferation of solutions. There's a lot of innovation, you know, and, and technology now through the cloud is a lot more available than it might have been just simply 10 years ago. So I think there's a flurry of options being thrown out in front of uh, CIO or chief data officers. And it's really hard to kind of parse through that noise. And sometimes, you know, as technologists, and I'm a technologist myself, we might get enamored by, oh, this is a cool concept. And, and what if what if I deployed this? So I think there's this first, uh, you know, that makes it a little bit hard for uh, leaders. Secondly, is that chief data officers don't think about themselves as business leaders. They think about themselves technically as, as technical leaders. And so what we work with organizations with is when you drive your initiatives, do you have a brand? for your initiative? Do you have a communication plan for your initiative? You know, as technical leaders, we really think that there's a part of marketing the uh, solution, if you will, back into the organization that matters to succeeding. And so I think, you know, the combination of those explains why, you know, there's not a lot of, of success. I think if you look at some of the latest research from Accenture, I think they said 68% of organizations can't find value from the data that they have. You know, that's that's a huge number. And also, it's just uh, simply difficult for chief data officers to stay in place. I think I said earlier, I think that the average tenure of the chief data officer is less than a thousand days. And primarily, it's related because we found that they rarely tie their technical initiatives to business goals, and they might not think about the communication of those business goals. And so that kind of hurts them in succeeding uh, with their data strategy. All of this begs the question. Who should own these data science efforts? Because when you say that there's a disconnect between the technology problem that is being solved and the business requirement, there has to be a cause. So who should own these efforts? So what we found in some of the surveys that, that we did is there's primarily two executives that this falls under. The first one, interestingly enough, is the CFO. So, you know, when we asked uh, our community to tell us, where do you think data science, data analytics should roll under? 
you know, a large percentage, uh, 34%, so it's not the majority, but 34% of people said primarily uh, the CFO. And, and the reason for that is because I think over the years, the CFOs have gone more from the back office cost retention type of role to innovating, uh, using data as a way to power the organization and, and drive the operations of the organization and, and data and analytics and data science have a great opportunity to do that. So the CFO might actually be, again, it depends on, on their objective. And so you have to decide for your own organization, but actually it might be a, a good uh, group uh, to own this. The second one has been the CTO, the chief technology officer. And again, it depends on their style, their team and so forth. But I think the reason for that is because you want uh, on your bench a good amount of very technical uh, folks. Like, you know, we have seen over the years, you know, the, the data scientist, I think, was the sexiest uh, data role. Uh, and now it's going to the machine learning engineer. So you think, wow, it's, it's getting more and more technical. And I think the reason for that is because the industry is innovating really, really fast. And so you want technically savvy folks uh, to enable you to deploy, but you want to couple them with your business folks. In fact, it's probably harder um, to learn the business coming from a technology background than the opposite at, at the moment, because we're now building technology that is taking over a lot of the tough steps that you might have uh, needed to learn. You know, I think about auto data preparation or auto data quality and all these steps that now business analysts can come in and start using. So what I would say is, you know, what we see organizations do is they look at their blueprint and say you have 100 people to handle the data analytics issue and, and they tend to put half in the central, you know, uh, business unit and then half into a central, you know, corporate unit like the CTO's organization or the CFO's organization. You said that CFOs could be the right folks to manage or be responsible for these data efforts. But my question is this, CFOs in general may understand technology, but certainly by and large don't have the kind of deep expertise that's required from a technology standpoint. And so how is it practical for a CFO to manage this? And by the way, why didn't you say that the CIO should be responsible? There are two aspects to, to the answer to this question. I think why not the CIO is because, you know, at least from what we're hearing from our, our customers is typically if your CIO is focused on internal technology and infrastructure choices, you know, data and analytics tend to be an application business. We don't think about this uh, today, but they are a business application consumed and, uh, and directed towards value creation. And so I think that's why the, the CFO um, kind of comes in here is because modern CFOs don't think about just budget and reducing costs. They think about, okay, opportunities for us uh, to create value. A great example of that is now organizations creating data products that they will monetize. You know, I think about retailers, for instance, so one of the great organizations that are working with Carrefour is one of the largest retailers in, in the world have solved their data mesh issues for themselves and now have built around it. And they're now starting to create data products that they can sell back into their community, uh, which, you know, is now talking about, you know, driving revenue for the organization. So I think the mindset of the most innovative organizations is that data is not a liability. Data is not, you know, something that I guard only. Data is something I build upon. 
and it actually becomes an asset for me to manage uh, up to a point where I can create products off of it and monetize these products. And so I think that's why customers are saying what they're saying around where it should it should fit. And we have another interesting question from Arsalan Khan on an aspect of this topic. He says, as organizations become increasingly reliant on AI, machine learning for decision-making, are some executives resistant to accepting data as the ultimate decision-maker? In other words, if I can rephrase it, if a what should what should folks do if a business leader rejects the conclusions that the data presents i don't think this is right yeah sure your data says says whatever but i know from my experience can't be right this is the typical gut feeling right that that we we deal with and the issue with gut feeling is you never know if it's actual experience or if it's an indigestion right so you you don't want to just rely on gut feel but but it is true that you know if you read uh, theory on this and books, you know from Malcolm Gladwell and and other folks that are very uh, you know educated, well researched, you know the right decision is going to come from the combination of really good data and and experience around the mistakes that maybe you've made or maybe others have made that you've been able to learn from. I think in general, it's never a good idea to decide a hundred percent on your gut feel. You know you might. Get lucky every once in a while, but now we have technology that captures uh, enough that you are able to not just understand, but in, in many cases, predict. And there are many great stories like this, right? And baseball and then the wine industry and, and others like this that we can all relate to. I think, you know, uh, you're always going to get into a conversation with an executive that maybe might not believe the insights that you're bringing in. This is why in the last few years, you might have seen the work from Nancy Duarte on storytelling, right? So connecting uh, with uh, the emotional aspects of how this executive might relate to the data. You know, in, in the book that we wrote a few years ago, uh, Drive Business Performance, we talked about the example of Lego, where the data analyst not only presented the information, so dashboards, but they actually had the voicemail left by the kids being played to the executive. So the executive as a parent could relate to the customer feedback they would get and actually did change the strategy. So I would, what I would advise uh, our friend Arsalan here asking the question is, don't think about just the binary logic aspect on how you're delivering the data. Think about the emotional aspect, You know, the way people make decisions, even executives with great experiences how they emotionally connect with the data. And so that, that's really important as well to build into how you present your results to folks you're trying to convince. We have two interesting questions from LinkedIn, and this is from Prashant Motawar. And he says, number one, what about the chief digital officer as the owner of data and analytics? What do you think about that? Given the, the past you know couple of years here where you know, digitalization is really accelerated. I mean, we, we see certainly in organizations that, you know, would gather a lot of their information from physical locations like retailers and financial industries. Well, nobody goes to the branches and nobody goes to the store. So the person that's in charge of digitalization and, you know, taking this system into, you know, the future is certainly uh, going to be, uh, you know, interested in, in collecting and understanding uh, data a lot faster. What I would say, though, is, you know, it's not just the title that you have to look at, it's also the organizational footprint 
the people under this leader, you know, is it the right talent? Is this the right organizational footprint? Do you have shared goals? You know, one of the important best practices that we see is that, you know, it's not just the CDO's job to innovate with data. It's the rest of the organizations. And so we worked with, you know, CIOs, CFOs, CTOs who share business goals that they actually don't have a direct impact into it, but they also have shared goals with business folks who do not have a direct impact on the metric itself. But the point here is to get them to get together, align, and collaborate. So the chief data, data officer, chief digital officer are great roles, but I wouldn't just be wedded to the title. I would look deeper into the organizational footprint of that organization. Another excellent question from Prashant, an important question. He says, data insights are extremely valuable when delivered at the right time to the <laughs> right people with a right context. Any point of view on how to enable this? Years ago, I did a keynote at a, um, a data summit, and I came up with this acronym, not a very pleasant acronym, but at least memorable, called RAT. RAT, R-A-T, because data needs to be relevant, actionable, and timely. And so you're absolutely right in your analysis. If I told you that, uh, you know, here's an umbrella because it rained yesterday, not very helpful. Um, and so, uh, you know, there, there are a few best practices here. The first one is actual data literacy across your organization. It's one thing to deliver the data, but it's also another thing for people to actually understand the data. And so we, we also did a survey on, you know, how many data employees should you have inside your organization? So when you deliver the data, people understand, you know, what to do about it. And, and uh, Kern Bourne, uh, who is a member of the community, had, the, I think, the best answer where he said, you know, 100% of your employees should be data literate. And what that means is they should be able to recognize, they should be able to understand, and they should be able to talk data. So I would make sure that at least all your employees understand the opportunity they have with using data so that when they get it in their context, uh, they can use it. Then a third of the organization should be data fluent. What does that mean? That means they should be able to analyze, they should be able to create arguments, they should be able to present results visually, emotionally, to their management, to their peers. And then 10% of your organization should be data professional. And a data pro here is someone who's paid to create value from uh, assets. You know, the reason for why I'm saying this, this balance of role matters is because the issue sometimes is you might be presenting data in the right context, but to people that might not know what to do with it. And so, you know, what we tend to forget is we're not in the business of, you know, building you know, folks to become data specialists. We're in the business, you're in the business of doing your business. And so to be able to be equipped with that, you have to deliver the data on time to an audience that is willing to, or is equipped to act on that data. Right? And that's the most important thing is how do you act on that data? And we have another prep question now from Twitter from Elizabeth Shaw who says, in a busy company, should the person in charge of data science repurpose their old BI data strategy for today's data science needs? And how should they do that? Too often, we feel like we have to hire outside folks to come and solve a problem uh, because you know the other folks have a data scientist title and, and my folks don't have a data scientist problem. So, what I would say is that, you know, and I just talked to a chief data officer today who's looking at 
how she's you know going to upscale uh, her her team, and she is absolutely starting with the existing talent because institutional knowledge of your organization, the knowledge of your customers, the knowledge of your organizational process is is critically important. And you know, yes, you can bring outside talent that is technically gifted and so forth, but you'll never be able to hire enough of them so you can tackle you know the problems that you need to tackle, and often in a very timely uh, manner. And the reality is that. There's toolset now uh, that enables a business analyst to step up into a data scientist uh, type of role. And so I would never discard your existing talent. Uh, I am sure many of them are capable of doing more, either because they're motivated to get the training or because the toolset that is presented to them is making access to data and working with data a, a lot simpler. I mean, I'll just give you an example uh, on our data stack. We have this product called BigQuery, and we have this embedded machine learning capability inside BigQuery, which means that you don't have to move the data, you don't have to set up new infrastructure, and you can trigger models and run them with just a few lines of SQL. Uh, just these few lines make a business analyst able to do work that you know in other platforms would require a lot of code from a, a machine learning engineer. And so I think the good news here is that the industry, cloud vendors like us and, and the rest of the ecosystem, is really driving to making tools easier to use, which means for you, you can use your people and upskill them into where you want them to be. Certainly, when when I talk with CIOs, the idea of low-code, no-code products is right front and center of how you can help how you can help your organization innovate while reducing costs. Absolutely. This low code and no code is probably the, one of the most disruptive trends of 2021. Uh, and it's primarily because it's, it's enabling business users to create business purpose domain specific applications for themselves. And so I, I believe that the world of package applications is going to be disrupted over the next 10 years because now these business users are able to just solve a problem by bringing in services kind of in a composable manner to create an application that's relevant to them and their community. And so definitely the tools are getting easier. Uh, people are getting uh, more skilled uh, and there's a, you know, a more you know, need and acute need for uh, working with more data. And so I think the combination of those things, you know, it doesn't mean that you, you, got, you, you should look for the answer outside of the nation, your organization. The answer often starts with you. And we have another question, again, from LinkedIn. This is from Scott Beliveau, and he asks, what's the next data thing that organizations are not talking about and looking at, but should be? Look at a lot of technology, and, and recently I bought myself these glasses, these smart glasses um, that you know I can talk to and they can do things for me and so forth. And I think you know what we're not talking about enough is what is the future of the interface into data? Uh, today, we're used to our keyboards and we're used to our phones, but the reality is that in the future, and not too distant of the future, I believe, our voice, our eyes are going to be how we interact with, with information. And so, you know, there's a lot of investment going into, you know, natural language technology. It's a, you know, a huge field around natural language processing, natural language understanding, uh, it reminds me back when I was at Microsoft where we shipped the Xbox and 
you know, the Xbox had this amazing camera called the Kinect. It was one of the most popular uh, devices. It was this camera that was look that would scan my body, and the tagline was "You are the controller." And I think that's where we're going with data. You know, ultimately to broaden the appeal of data and make data more engaging for more people, we got to change the relationship. You know, we we are now in the, in the mode where we have to talk machine. And then I think in the next 10 years, the machine is going to talk human and that's going to empower new uh, use cases. I mean, you experience it at home with, you know, smart, um, you know, home devices that you can call up on to set up your alarm or get answers and so forth. So I think that's what's going to happen in the corporate context as well. Bruno, we're just about out of time. Any final thoughts or words of advice to folks who are listening regarding being successful with the data, aligning data efforts with the business, the things that's, that are really hard. I do have one thing that, that I think is important for folks to consider is this whole domain of data culture. Uh, one of my good friends, Randy Bean, just published a book on, uh, you know, yeah, I think he calls it a, a fail fast uh, and learn, learn faster. Um, might be misquoting the, the, the title, so, but I'll send you the exact link. But in it, he's interviewed uh, data leaders and asked, what is getting in the way of being successful with data? And it turns out that the majority of them are saying it's the data culture. And so what I did is I created my data culture checklist. We won't be able to go through all 10 of them, but I'll give you a couple of best practices. And the first one we talked about branding, brand your initiative, think about it seriously, create a logo, have certified data so people recognize the quality of your data, really important in making sure that, you know, you take data seriously at your organization. Second is have what what I call decision inspection. And what I mean by that is often we do postmortems. Often we look at failure and we say, okay, let's try and understand how we failed. Two best practices. Are you doing pre-mortems? And pre-mortem is if everything goes wrong, what does that look like? Are we ready to react to a situation when it's going to go wrong. And then the second practice is analyze your successes. You know, often you succeed and you move on, but do you truly understand why something really succeeded? And so having this decision inspection mentality, I know it's hard because everybody's moving really fast. It's hard to prioritize is the best way for you to build this data culture that ultimately is going to make you one of the most innovative organizations uh, in, in the industry. Bruno Aziz, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. It's been a, an action-packed 45 minutes. Really, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Michael. Everybody, thank you for watching, especially those folks who ask such excellent questions. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so that we can send you our newsletter and you'll get notified of our amazing upcoming shows. Check out CXOTalk.com and tell a friend.